this morning's reading, uh, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. It's really great to be with you here again um, in Village South this morning. Um, for any of you who don't know me, um, as Jess uh, said, my name's Nick, I'm one of the elders at Village. Um, if you are looking at me thinking you've never seen me before, it's probably because you haven't. Um, uh, myself and my wife Sarah and our daughter Grace, um, we're, we're part of Village East. Um, so uh, yeah, hopefully um, over time um, you'll maybe see a little bit more of me kind of backwards and forwards. Um, but that being said, it's really great to be with you here this morning. Um, it's always amazing to see how many of you there are every time I come back um, and to see you kind of growing in number and just to get such a picture of God building his church. So um, that's a big encouragement for me, for sure. Um, and as always, I bring with me love and prayers from your brothers and sisters in Village East. Um, you guys are never far from our thoughts, so be encouraged by that because you guys really are an, an encouragement to us. So let's, let's get started um, with, with 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 this morning. Um, as you'll be aware from the reading, there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot that we're going to unpack here this morning. But as always, we believe it'll be immensely good for us 
and God's Word will speak some very important truths to his church this morning. One of the biggest issues um, or the, the greatest areas for concern in the Corinthian church that we continue to see throughout this letter was just how little respect they had for their founding leader, Paul. And as we'll see in this chapter, this lack of respect is inextricably bound and linked to their mistaken ideas about entitlement, rights, and freedom. Chapter 9, we see an entire chapter devoted to these ideas, this idea of freedom. And even as Paul approaches the idea, we can see from the position which he begins to write that this was another area of contention or division within the Corinthian church. And Paul not only has to clarify this for the church in Corinth, but in doing so, he also has to affirm his own standing and his own authority, which had come under question by the Corinthians. And so as we look at this, this whole chapter, this morning we're going to see two main things. Firstly, we're going to see the full extent of how the gospel has impacted Paul's life and thinking. And in that, we'll see an example for ourselves to follow. The ways, if you like, um, that, that Paul had been transformed by the renewing of his mind, to use the words of Romans 12. And secondly, we're going to see how, how Paul's sense of gospel perspective, um, if you want to call it that, impacts his life and his actions practically. So that all sounds quite similar, but, but we'll see it, it's, it's, it's closely linked. So let me pray for us before we, before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray as we turn to it this morning that you would just still our hearts, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, that you would help us to cast out anything that would, would compete for our attention this morning. Pray you would speak this this morning, that your spirit would move and speak freely, that would be made more like you, Jesus, um, and that you would become greater in this place, and, and, and that we would decrease here this morning. For it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What things in life do you believe you're entitled to? Or perhaps what do you think you deserve in life? What are the things in your life that if someone took them from you tomorrow, you'd say, that's not fair, or you've no right to take that from me? So just think briefly about that, and whatever pops in your mind, just kind of hold that there as a bit of a reference point. The Corinthians, as we'll see, were a pretty entitled bunch, and this is something that I think we can relate to in our society today. We do, after all, live in what has been described as the new age of entitlement, but entitlement isn't new. It's such a natural and human way of thinking. The idea that we are the very center of our own universe, we're the center of our own narrative, the idea that the world and everyone else in it should be playing to our tune. And when people don't stick to our script, then obviously they must be wrong. We have the right to this, we have the right to that, and nobody has the right to take from me what is rightfully mine. In fact, several studies have shown that the word entitled is the single word most commonly associated with Generation Y or the millennials, as uh, my age group has become so famously known. The entitlement to walk into a job straight out of education, the entitlement to have a career you want because you deserve that, or the entitlement to have a salary and work-life balance that you want because, well, who is anyone else to deprive you of those rights? And all of this comes from an outlook on the world that places self at the center. Let's not be too hard on the millennials, because as, as many people will tell you, we'll only end up getting too sensitive and emotional about it anyway. <laughs> because a sense of entitlement, you see, is, is, is natural and is a sinfully human response to how we perceive the rest of the world. And we can see that with the Corinthians. We see that they had their own narrative, and specifically, they had, they had their, their own ideas about the kind of leader that they wanted. They thought they had the right to a leader who was different to Paul and who behaved differently to Paul. As we saw in chapter 1, a lot of weeks back, the Jewish converts in Corinth demanded leaders who would bring signs and wonders, powerful commanding leaders in the mold of their Jewish culture and tradition, while the Greek or Gentile believers were very much influenced by sophisticated culture and intellect. And they wanted these leaders who were great orators and who were uh, these, these prominent philosophers. 
But Paul presents himself as neither of these things. And he believed that neither was what the church really needed. See, Paul was aware that the gospel wasn't designed to satisfy those demands. He was fully aware of this in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians when he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul as a leader just didn't fit with the Corinthians' own narrative for themselves. To put it simply, he didn't fit the mold of the leader that they wanted. He didn't measure up in any way, physically even. He was diminutive in stature, um, and he was by no means the greatest communicator or orator that the church has ever seen. And so the Corinthians expected Paul to adapt to their desires, their preferences, and their ideals of how he should lead And we see here, and we'll see this throughout the chapter, just how dangerous this sense of entitlement can be. Stephen Um, who's a commentator on on 1 Corinthians, talks about the threefold danger in entitlement. So he says that entitlement distorts our perceptions of reality. It impairs our ability to receive gifts. And it turns us against the world and against the ones we love. So I'll just go through this again. He says it distorts our perceptions of reality, it impairs our ability to receive gifts, and it turns us against the world and the ones we love. So we see that when when our outlook on life comes from a, a place of entitlement, friends and loved ones become the villains in our own story. If someone else isn't following the script, then then they're replaceable. We'll find someone else. And Um goes on to say that entitlement is the bane of relationships. And it was certainly the bane of the Corinthians' relationship with Paul. They challenged Paul. And they challenged him out of their own sense of entitlement. And this had undermined their awareness of just how indebted they really were to Paul. And feeling entitled to a leader who they could manipulate and buy off, they began to attack Paul's ministry, his vocation and calling, and the instrumental role that he had played in bringing them the good news about Jesus and establishing the church in Corinth. The Corinthians had turned on Paul. And so the first thing that we're going to see in this chapter is Paul responding to the Corinthians' entitled criticisms and challenges. And and the response that we see here is a fully gospel-informed response. So, if we look at the opening verses of the chapter, um, we begin to see this series of very direct rhetorical questions from Paul. Paul, who's fully assured of his identity as an apostle and a follower of Christ, affirms three things that the Corinthians had incorrectly called into question. He affirms his status as an apostle, his rights, and his calling. And as we look at these three things very briefly, um, we'll see just how fully the gospel had shaped Paul's outlook on life and his perspective. So verses 1 and 2, um, Paul begins um, in these verses by affirming his status as an apostle. It reads, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul here, in this kind of rhetorical line of questioning, he's not asking the Corinthians anything. Um, He's not looking for an answer from them, um, but he's seeking to affirm and remind them of his authority as an apostle and as their founding leader. In verse 1, he's not asking if he's seen the Lord. He's saying, I have seen the Lord. So we know he's a witness to the Lord. And in verse 2, again, he's saying, you are my workmanship in the Lord's. So we see that he's a witness to the Lord and he's a workman for the Lord, qualifying him as an apostle. But the Corinthians knew this. As much as they didn't like it, they knew that Paul met the criteria for being a genuine apostle. And Paul is offering them a reminder of this. He saw Christ in glory on the Damascus road and his enduring and powerful ministry in the church in Corinth combined to confirm this in no uncertain terms. Paul, from the outset of the chapter, is reminding the Corinthians of his 
authority and the authority that his instructions carry. So having done this, now he says, those rights that you're so concerned about, let's talk about those. Let, let's get into that now. Now that you've been reminded of who I am, let's look at that stuff. So verses 3 through to 14 then, is Paul presenting his case that he has the right to be uh, supported and maintained financially and materially by the church at Corinth. Okay, and this was something that he was entitled to as an apostle. It's not the right of every Christian, but as we'll see, it's the right of some, and it was the right of the apostles. So notice what he says in verse 5. Do we have no right to take about a believing wife, as do the other apostles, and as the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I rarely think of the apostles as having wives or families. Um, you kind of think of them as just being these single guys who went about doing their own thing. Um, but we know that they did. Um, we even know that other apostles claimed this right to be supported and to be financed by the churches that they served. And this support was not only for themselves, but for their wives and families as well. What Paul is teaching here is that when a person gives himself or herself totally to the spreading of the gospel and the building of God's kingdom on earth, then that person has a right to be maintained and supported in that work. Let's just note here, I think it's pretty convenient that on the week we're looking at a passage affirming the pastor's right to be paid. Um, we've given this one to a lay elder, so um, Andrew, if you're listening, you're welcome. Um, but all jokes aside, um, David Pryor, um, another commentator, points out that Paul refers to five kind of precedents, um, basically to kind of confirm um, these people's right to be supported. Um, so the first one we see in verse 7, um, Paul, Paul looks to common practice, and he uses these kind of worldly examples to, to sort of call us into question. And one of those is, is the example of, of a soldier. He says, you don't expect a soldier to provide their own weapons. Why, why would we expect that? Um, so it, it, it's normal in that context um, that provisions are made for people. The second precedent then is scriptural precept, um, and we see that in verses 8 to 10, when Paul reminds the Corinthians that, that Mosaic law commanded that you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading grain. This wasn't an, an instruction purely to farmers as to how they, they looked after their animals, um, but this was an instruction to ensure that laborers were properly compensated for their work. The third precedent then is uh, intrinsic justice. So in verses 11 to 12, Paul suggests that our, our response to the spiritual blessings that we received should be one of gratitude and generosity towards the ones who have devoted their lives to sharing that good news. He was further in verse 13 to highlight the fact that the, this idea of, of, um, of, of laborers in the kingdom being, being supported um, shouldn't have been unusual to the Jewish believers, okay? This was commonplace in the Jewish temples as well. And then again, Paul goes even further um, and highlights in the fifth precedent that Christ actually commands this. Paul refers to Christ's command in Matthew 10 that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So Paul's case that he's built with these five precedents here leaves us clear in the picture that when the church supports those who are devoted in all their time and all their energy to the work of God, they're doing the right thing. And when they don't do it, they're doing something wrong. See, when we as a church support missionaries and support pastors and support evangelists, we're not doing that out of the goodness of our hearts. We're doing that because it's something that Scripture commands us to do. And Paul uses these examples from both the world and from the Word of God to build the case that this is the right thing to do. Now, like this, you know, this, like many other subjects in 1 Corinthians, um, are topics that are seldom talked about because they get a little bit awkward. But this is a part of the whole counsel of God, and, and it's, it's for this reason um, that at Village we take, we take an approach that we call expository preaching. We take full chunks of the Bible, because if we didn't do that and we just picked areas sort of thematically or topically, the temptation would be to kind of skip these ones because they get a little bit awkward. 
I get all the good ones because last time I was here I was preaching on uh, excommunication, incest, and adultery. So um, there's a recurring theme here. Um, but as a church, we must recognize our responsibilities in these matters. And when we support people who are dedicated to the Word of God and the work of God, especially when it is to our benefit, then we're doing the right thing. And so it was Paul's right as an apostle to be financially supported. The third thing that, that Paul then is, is affirming um, is, is his, his calling. So he's just established his own personal right to be supported as an apostle. But what we don't see then is an apostle demanding what is rightfully his or staking a claim to that. Rather, Paul goes on to explain his decision to employ his freedom to not avail of this right. And this is where we begin to see Paul completely turning this whole economy of entitlement on its head. Now, it's often been mistakenly assumed that, that Paul was kind of going to these lengths to kind of um, outline and, 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 and argue his, his case to be financially supported because this is something the Corinthians were withholding from him. But this wasn't the case. And if anything, they probably wished they could pay him and that he would take their money because with that probably would have come a certain degree of influence over him. And we also know that this wasn't Paul's underhanded attempt to try and convince them to pay him because he tells us that he'd rather die than take their money. So he's pretty clear on that one. Paul refused the right to financial support because he didn't want to bring into question his motivations for sharing the gospel. Paul chose not to take money or support from the church of Corinth because he wanted to use this as an illustration of Christian freedom. Now, it's worth saying at this point that as powerful an, an illustration as we'll see that that is, this isn't prescriptive, okay? So with regards to our leaders, we're not going to decide that they, they shouldn't be looking for a salary because, um, yeah. Um, but we need to see that Paul did this of his own volition, okay? Um, Paul was in many ways an exception even among the, the apostles. So he was celibate. He had no wife. He had no family to support. And so he was in a position to do things that even other apostles weren't able to do. Just a few weeks ago, um, over in, in East, um, we kind of celebrated and sent off um, Judy Shaw, who's, who's gone to work um, with OM on one of the Logos ships. Um, and we give thanks for Judy. We give thanks for her desire to go and serve God in this way, and her desire to serve God in a way that only someone in her position or her stage of life was, was able to serve God. Um, we noted that actually Judy's going to do something that if she was married at this stage in life would be a lot harder, and if she had children would probably be impossible. And Paul's doing something similar here. Now, we know that Paul could have taken this financial support quite legitimately, but such was Paul's joy in preaching the gospel that he thought it unthinkable to view ministry as being in any way connected with something as menial as employment. Just as the message had been free to him and to the Corinthians, Paul desired that the messenger would be free also. Verses 16 and 17 show us that Paul viewed his role as one of stewardship. He had been trusted with a treasure that was the gospel, and he was responsible for protecting and investing and stewarding that treasure. He knows that he has no choice in preaching the gospel. He says he has to preach the gospel out of necessity. Such was the divine call on his life. Preaching the gospel wasn't optional for Paul. But what was optional was the exercising of his rights and the pursuit of his entitlements. Verse 18 shows us when he says, What then is my reward, that in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? Shows, this shows us that, that Paul was so thrilled with the freeness of the gospel that his reward came from preaching it without any charge. In a world and a culture where even in the church, preachers and apostles probably had their price, Paul is turning the culture upside down and presenting something which can't be bought and something which he sees as even more valuable than his own rights. 
So as we look at kind of Paul's response in these three areas, we see something very clearly about Paul's character, his perspective, and his motivations. This response and this refusal to back down in the face of questions of his calling and his authority to preach the gospel and his refusal to grasp and cling on to certain rights that he was fully aware he had, this speaks to the single-minded, unwavering motivation in Paul's life. Paul's aim with every breath of life that he had was to win souls for Jesus. And we'll see in the remaining chunk of this chapter that the phrase, that I might win, is used five times. This motivation and this relentless drive which Paul possessed was the mark of a man who fully grasped the meaning of what he describes in Philippians as the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Nothing that this world has to offer, no approval, no rights, no entitlements came close to stealing Paul's affections for Jesus because Paul wasn't the center of his own narrative. Jesus was. Paul recognized that in the world in which he lived, that world wasn't made to satisfy him. Rather, he was made to glorify God. And so nothing mattered more to Paul than making Christ known and seeing more men and women added to the kingdom. And we'll see this as we come to verse 23, where he says, I do all of this all of it for the sake of the gospel. And from this we see Paul consistently throughout his life and even in his death approach his life and his ministry with a fervor and a zeal and a commitment which I think all too often just seems a little alien to us. But brothers and sisters, that should unsettle us in itself. And I pray that it challenges us and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit it changes us. So let's look on to the second half of this chapter, where we're going to see three practical marks of the gospel on Paul's life and, his, and on his relationships. And there we're going to see some important lessons for us as we strive to join him in his aim to win souls for Jesus. So the first thing that Paul demonstrates when we look at verse 19 is gospel sacrifice. Verse 19 reads, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So here we see the first use of this phrase, that I might win. And even reading this today, I think that this, this whole verse can seem like a bit of a contradiction. And to the Corinthian church with their lofty, educated ideals about their entitlements that they had kind of meshed with their newly sort of obtained Christian freedom, it would have raised a few eyebrows at least. But what Paul means is that as a Christian, the freedom he experiences is not a worldly one. And while his freedom depends on the gospel, it also defers to the gospel. So let me explain what I mean by that. His freedom depends on the gospel, but it also defers to the gospel. So yes, Paul is no longer bound by the Jewish customs and laws that he grew up with. Neither is he bound by the trends of the Gentiles and the pagans. Also, as we've already looked at, he refused to take a wage from his ministry, so nobody could say he was doing it for money. He wasn't working on anyone else's agenda. In Jesus, Paul, as are we who are followers of Jesus, was completely free. And yet, here he says, he has made himself everyone's servant. For Paul... His freedom was not a human right to be defended. It was a gift to be offered up in the service of the Lord. In the West, we talk a lot about kind of rights and freedoms and human rights and the freedom of people, and it's all very topical at the minute. And praise God that we live in a place where we have those rights and can enjoy them. Um, you know, many of our brothers and sisters around the world don't get the opportunity to do what we do every Sunday. But as Tim Keller points out when discussing the issue of freedom and boundaries, he points out that freedom isn't just unconstrained choices without boundaries, but rather freedom is finding the kinds of boundaries that liberate us to be fully alive. Freedom is finding the thing that when you choose to that and commit to that, 
you can actually get in on something. But if you constantly keep your options open and commit to nothing, you're not actually free to enjoy or know anything. Some meals at that fabulous restaurant need reservations months in advance. Getting to that must-see concert demands time, energy, effort, and blocking out that day in the calendar. Finishing a book requires not starting 50 other ones. True freedom in this sense is choosing that which we were made for. And God's word tells us that we were made for him and for his glory. To glorify Christ who condescended for the good of others, not seeing anything he was entitled to as something to be grasped. Philippians 2 verses 5 to 7 reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So what good is our freedom if we're not using it for the glory of God? As Keller says, it's like having the freedom to choose anything on the menu in the restaurant and choosing not to eat anything so you still have the choice of everything. What's the point in celebrating freedom if we're not using it for God's purposes? God in his grace, his mercy, his sovereignty, and his providence has placed us exactly where we find ourselves right now with freedom to live for what we were created for, for the gospel, and living in a way that brings glory and honor to For Paul, living this way and in these boundaries of freedom was inseparable from seeking to win the lost. And so in subjecting himself to the gospel and bringing himself under the law of Jesus, Paul used the freedom that he had found in that to make himself a slave to everybody. Paul uses his freedom to give up his freedom for the sake of the gospel. And so he modified his habits. He changed his lifestyle. He set aside his preferences. And this is what it meant for Paul to be a servant of all. As he sought to win others for Christ, he modeled Christ himself, the one who came as the servant king. You see, as we looked at earlier, if we take the approach of the Corinthians of only ever claiming and defending our rights and what we believe we're entitled to, we prevent ourselves from receiving the fullness of God's gift of freedom by the very fact that we find ourselves turned against the world that we're called to serve. As always, Jesus is our ultimate example in this. The King of Kings, the Creator God, made himself lower than his creatures. He came not to be served, but to serve. Did Jesus think of his moral entitlements as a Jewish citizen when he met Zacchaeus, the tax collector? who was himself the embodiment of the very scourge of the Jewish people? Or did Jesus consider his rights when he was beaten and mocked and spat on and kneeled to the cross for our sins? To rescue us from death, Christ made himself lowest of all. And so he commands us to deny ourselves to follow him. You see, being free in Christ means we are to follow him by loving and serving others in the same measure and in the same ways that he loved us. So what does this look like practically? We talk a lot in church in Northern Ireland anyway about being the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, but ask yourself, are you engaging with the lost people that you're in contact with? Or maybe you need to ask yourself, Am I even in contact with any lost people? Do you know your neighbors? Do you know what's going on in their lives? And do they know that you care what's going on in their lives? I think we can get so consumed by awkwardness in these things and, and fall into these little patterns of, of kind of social acceptability. Um, and dare I say it, I think even one of the, the entitlements that we hold on to most tightly, even as Christians in the West, is our right to be busy. We're just too busy for stuff like that. But let's never let busy get in the way of serving others and doing what we're primarily called to do. Rarely will anything have more impact 
for the kingdom of God than when you, to your own expense or to your own detriment, serve others and do so freely and do so with the fullness of joy that is only found in the Lord. Second thing that Paul demonstrates then is gospel adaptability. Verses 20 to 23, Paul wishes to be all things to all men. Verse 20 to 23 reads, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, it's important to note here, Paul isn't talking um, about being walked over or being permissive or being flexible. Um, I think the difference between flexible and adaptable is that flexible describes something which under coercion or pressure or influence changes or takes on a different form. But Paul does not mean that we change our message in the face of opposition. He doesn't mean that we just go with the flow to fit in. That's not what he's talking about. So he doesn't say, to the adulterer, I became an adulterer. To the drunks, I became drunk. And to the murderer, I became a murderer. Even to the people to whom he's ministering, he doesn't say he becomes what they are. But insofar as he can, without compromising his integrity, he becomes as they are. Gospel adaptability, rather, isn't about doing the things you know that are contrary to the word of God under the pretense that you're trying to reach people. Rather, it's being willing to adapt our approach and our roles in people's lives according to how they and their circumstances differ. So, for example, Paul, although freed from the law of Jewish ritual and tradition, would subject himself to those things and eat kosher food when dining with the Jews if it provided him with an opportunity to share the gospel. Although phenomenally well-educated, when talking about the weak in verse 22, Paul is talking about poorer, less educated members of the lower classes of Corinthian society. And when Paul was with them, he would have shared the gospel in simple terms without the use of lofty language and concepts that he himself would have been familiar and comfortable with. So what this means for us is that we are called to intentionally put ourselves in circumstances that we might not naturally have chosen, to step out of our comfort zone so that we can be a witness to the gospel and introduce people to Jesus. Paul's talking about meeting people where they are. Simple as that. Meet people where they're at with the gospel. So what does this look like for us in Belfast in the 21st century. So we may, as Christians, believe that we have the freedom to enjoy alcohol in moderation. But if we have the opportunity to share the gospel over dinner with our neighbor who we know to be a recovering alcoholic, that's probably a good time to skip having a beer with your pizza. We ourselves may, as Christians, not be under the, we may not be subject to the influence of alcohol in our lives, but we make ourselves as though we are for the sake of the opportunity to share the gospel. We can go a little deeper into that. So say, for example, the conversation with a Roman Catholic co-worker starts moving towards religion and faith. And you know that deep into that conversation, it's going to become apparent that both of you have some very different ideas and draw some very diff different conclusions about your faith, particularly when it comes to the nature of your salvation, the priesthood of all believers, the glorification of Mary. But is it going to be a positive, gospel-productive conversation if that's our start point? Or do we instead highlight the fact that we, we share some views, we share some views on creation, the sovereignty of God, even the Trinity, and find some common ground, allowing the door to be open without compromising our integrity as messengers of the gospel? See, Paul was always seeking the path of maximum gospel impact. But even in this, Paul had his critics. There were the libertines who said, 
you can do whatever you want. We have freedom in Christ. There's no rules. And then there were the legalists who said, Christ came to fulfill the law, so we still need to fulfill the law. But rather than allowing these, these, these groups to kind of run with these thoughts and create even further areas of misunderstanding, Paul clarifies his point immediately. Verse 20 and 21 show us that to the libertines, he doesn't say, I became one under the law. He said, I became as one under the law. And just to be clear, I'm not under the law. To the legalists, he doesn't say, I became outside the law. He said, I became as one outside the law. And again, clarifies that I am still under the law of Christ. Paul's means of sharing the gospel never came at the expense of his integrity. But yet it regularly came at the expense of his comfort, his preference, and his familiarity. Paul reached out to people and met them where they were. He took the gospel to them and didn't take with it any demands or stipulations, and nor did he allow his own pursuit of his own personal liberty to stop him doing this. So are you willing to go to the places that you wouldn't normally go to to win souls for Jesus? Are you willing to spend time with people you wouldn't normally hang out with for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to invest in the lives of those who don't fit in your kind of social and cultural mold? Let's not expect or demand the lost to fit into our ideas and our molds. But instead, let's find ways to make inroads into their lives where we can display the glory and the beauty of the gospel. Finally, the third thing that we see Paul demonstrate is gospel discipline and determination. Verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here in this, this last kind of point, Paul is stressing the importance of self-discipline in the Christian life. And in doing so, he likens the Christian life to that of an athlete. Corinthians would have been familiar with this kind of athletic imagery um, due to sort of biannual kind of competitive athletic games that took place in the region. And they, they kind of recognized the, these images and they knew what kind of competition um, or what kind of discipline was involved for athletes in these competitions. Such athletes had to prepare with dedication and discipline. But Paul says to the church in Corinth, just as these athletes prepare and discipline themselves for their prize, so too do you need to do the same if you are to win the prize of winning souls for Jesus. Paul takes the two disciplines of running and boxing. When a man is running, he knows where he's going and he knows where the finish line is, so he runs with certainty and purpose. When a man is boxing, he doesn't beat the air. He strikes his own opponent. Paul likens his own ministry to not running aimlessly and not beating the air. And Paul is talking about the purpose and the determination with which he is committed to his aim of seeing souls saved. And the thing that makes this possible is gospel discipline. Verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And the, the Greek translation of, of the first part of this verse actually reads that I pummel my body and I make it a slave. That's how lowly Paul thought of himself. So just as winning a race or a boxing match takes preparation and discipline, so too does winning souls for Jesus. And if we're not disciplined, we can be disqualified from the game. This is what Paul's getting at. He's not saying when he talks about being disqualified, about losing his salvation. But rather he's saying, if I preach the gospel and don't apply it to my own life, then my preaching will be undermined. It'll be discredited and it'll be disqualified. 
I preach the good news of Jesus, but that, that, that teaching doesn't penetrate my own life, I can rob my preaching of any real meaning and effectiveness. As Christians, such should be our gospel intentionality that when people find out we're a Christian, their response shouldn't be, their response should be, oh yeah, that, that makes sense, or yeah, I knew there was something different about that person. Never should we be met with, I would never have guessed that, or, well, I didn't know Christians could say this, or I didn't know Christians could do that. Our lives should be so marked with the gospel that it, and its grace that it should be inescapable from those who we are in contact with. Now, none of this is easy, not even a wee bit. And we have an enemy who is set to try and make this stuff as difficult as possible. He uses our comforts, our entitlements, our rights to obscure our view of these things. And the moment we vow to live with this kind of discipline in our life is the very same moment that that becomes the single most difficult thing for us to do. But church, this is not about our doing and our achieving. Because it's, what, it's about what Christ has done the servant king, the ultimate example of one who had many rights but claimed none. But that's the point. He's more than just an example. He's our redeemer and our risen Lord and Savior, who through his life, death, and resurrection has made us his blood-bought children. And we're united to him in this. We are united to the one who laid down his own rights and rescued us from ourselves and from death and from separation from him. This is the good news of the gospel. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but the very Son of God took on flesh, lived a life of service, died a criminal's death so that he could take the penalty for your sin and for mine and win our freedom. And now as God's word tells us, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we are made holy and blameless before him. We have redemption by his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. If you've never responded to that good news this morning, salvation is available for you. Freedom is available for you this morning. Freedom to live for what you were created for doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done. The truth is we're all equal. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And it's only by trusting that he died for you, for your sins, because that's the only thing that can make you stand blameless before a holy God, that you can be saved. So please, if you've never done so before, put your trust in Jesus this morning. But this isn't just hope for future glory. There's a promise now for the Christian. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just as Jesus is about to ascend to sit at the Father's right hand, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, no, this isn't easy, but he has given us his Spirit as a helper to be his witnesses wherever we are and to whoever we are witnessing. If you're a Christian this morning, the spirit of the living God dwells within you. And it is by his spirit that we live with the freedom that lets us lay down our rights as we seek to win more for him. We've entitled this kind of block of this series in 1 Corinthians as, as Joyful Denial. And I don't think there's a clearer expression of that than in Paul's thinking, his life, and his actions as we see them in this chapter. In all things, Paul was prepared to deny himself, his rights, and his freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And this whole section is ultimately built into what we'll see Paul instruct us in chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, Therefore be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And imitating Christ is exactly what Paul's doing here. Imitating the one who had many rights, but claimed none. For Paul, evangelism was not an optional extra. It wasn't extracurricular. 
See, church, winning people to Christ is essential to the Christian life. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning and following in the way of Christ, then you're a missionary and you're called by God to win people to Jesus. So ask yourself this morning, who am I trying to win to Jesus? And let's drop the idea that to think on those terms is too radical or too fundamentalist or too alienating to the world because the gospel, after all, should carry a certain degree of offense to the unbeliever. C.S. Lewis says, and this is a pretty famous quote that, that many of you will be familiar with. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Paul knew that these were matters of infinite importance, and he loved and cared about Christ's church way too much than to let them think this was only moderately important or to let them skirt around these issues. He cared way too much about the church than to let them go on in thinking that their pursuit of bringing glory to God and seeing souls saved could be held in equal measure with their pursuit of their own rights and freedoms. So let's go back to my initial question at the beginning. Those entitlements that you wouldn't want anyone to take from you, are you willing to lay those down? Do we believe that this is of infinite importance? And do we really believe that the wrath of God is coming and coming to nations of lost people? Because if this never crosses our minds, then it'll be hard for us to feel the same sense of sorrow and urgency that Paul felt for lost people around him. Until this figures largely in our worldview as it did for Paul, we won't have the passion for evangelism that he had. So I pray this morning that by his spirit, we would come to deny ourselves more than ever and live with a greater gospel intentionality for the sake of Christ and for the sake of seeing more souls saved. Amen.